This is Whitley Strieber, and this is Dreamland. You've reached the edge of the world. Today on Dreamland, I would like to welcome back a very popular guest. Paul Sinclair is with us. Paul is has become, over the years, the master of a very weird corner of England. And, of course, you would ask, well, what corner of England isn't very weird? <laughs> this one is very weird. It's weirder than the rest of the corners of England, isn't it, Paul? really is Whitley. Yeah. Well, he's back with a new book in the Truth Proof series, Truth Proof 4, Beyond Reasonable Doubt. He also has his own video podcast now. And can you tell us where to get to you on YouTube? I can, Whitley. And thank you very much for inviting me back on the show. Yes, the the YouTube is uh, called Truth Proof. We live stream every Thursday, uh, lots of different and interesting guests. Uh, and, yeah, you can you can find us there. It has a good interactive chat. We have anything between 100 and 200 people in the chat, all asking decent questions to the guest. So I think it's well worth anybody's uh, participation if you're interested in unexplained phenomena. Yeah, I'm going to be on it myself, and I'm looking forward to it. Uh, his Website is truthproof.co.uk. And let's start by asking a simple question. Uh, I promise I, I will ask a few simple questions, but not many in, in any case. Um, why? Tell us about exactly where you are in England. Where is this area? I'm on the East Yorkshire coast of the United Kingdom. So we've got East and North Yorkshire. I'm literally, if, if I walked, turned and walked behind me, I'm 200 yards from the North Sea. Um, little fishing town that I live in, and it's dotted with fishing towns up and down the coast, obviously, because we're close to North Sea. And that's this is where a lot of the research has stemmed from. Uh, as you know, I'm entrenched in the subject because of my own experiences in early years, but I think that's probably par for the course for everyone who's been touched by the phenomena. But uh, I don't think it's because Paul Sinclair lives in, in Bridlington in the East Yorkshire that I'm digging this information up and, and unearthing things. I think it really is rich in unexplained phenomena. There's three areas particularly that's quite close to me, called Flamborough, Bempton and Speeton, where it seems to exhibit every type of unexplained that you could think of. So I wouldn't like to label myself, Whitley, as a researcher of UFOs, definitely not cryptids. This, that, that was the last thing I ever thought of, I'll be quite <laughs> honest with you. Yeah, it's a direction I never thought I would go, but I've kind of... I wouldn't say come to realise because I mean I can be somebody can stand stand and correct me because you know we're all here to learn. But from where I'm looking at the the subject now, everything within the subject, be it spiritual, be it UFO related, is all connected. Now I'm not saying the spiritual side of things is connected to the UFOs per se, but I do believe there's something there's some magical ingredients, for want of a better word, that are enabling these phenomena 
to manifest and come through. And I think that's what it might be. It could be some kind of enabler. And I don't mean out like a being, but there's just something that we're missing. And that there's a thread that runs through all the unexplained genre, the the strange descent into the lower silence when, when something's going to happen. You know, people realise that everything's changed and it, it runs through the cryptid sightings, the UFO sightings. It's it's a common thread. But let's talk a little bit about a couple of things when your idea of the seventh sense. But first, let's talk about that silence, because I've known that silence, too, many times when we used we're going to have an encounter at our cabin an absolutely extraordinary silence would fall. It was just a, a, a thick, rather wonderful but ominous silence. Can you tell us a little bit about your experiences of this? Yeah, and, and the witnesses, Whitley. You know, you, you, you sort of described it perfectly. I mean, in some cases, it's, it's ominous. I mean, I think many people have a different type of experience with perhaps what is the same phenomena. I don't know whether it's the mindset of the individual that that sets that scenario up. I don't know. But the lower silence, we've got a guy who I've written about in Truth Proof 4, uh, family man. I'm jumping to the silence, Whitley, I assure you. Family man, hard working, but when he gets the chance, he'll go for some solitude and he likes to look at the stars and the northern lights at a, at a place called Scalby Mills, about 15 miles away from my home. He's not interested in UFOs. And his experience, and he's done this many times over the years, but this guy's experience was sat up there alone in the darkness. He could hear the sounds of the sea crashing. He could hear seagulls, because they don't switch off at night. They're absolutely still soaring about everywhere. And he said, and then all of a sudden he realised everything had gone quiet. He said it was as though, and I loved his analogy, it was like somebody had pressed pause on the world. I wish I'd have thought of that. But, but this guy did. And he said it was just like somebody had pressed pause. He said, and then I became aware of a noise in the distance about 30 yards away. Heavy noise breaking the foliage. And then I perceived what was running towards me. If somebody had said to me, he said, Paul, a rhinoceros or a hippopotamus was running towards me. I would have believed it. He says the thunderous footsteps. And it was getting closer and closer. And he says, I put myself in a fetal position and dropped to the floor. And when this thing was upon me, everything just snapped. And it was like, we're back in the world again. But as as you know, because you've experienced this as well uh, on, on numerous occasions. And I'd like to ask you this question, but as you're asking me. When the lower silence descends, or the Oz factor, like whatever people want to call it, do you think you're already within the moment before you've realised you're in the moment? Um, that, that's that's what it used to be like for me as a, as a child when these things were happening. It was it was almost as though I I didn't know that it had happened until they'd gone. I had the experience and it was traumatic and I didn't enjoy it. But it was only when they'd gone that you're kind of absorbing it and you're realising it's happened. The the the, the, oh, the the influence that the phenomena puts on you. You, you're kind of trapped in it, rabbit in headlights. That's the, the way I felt. It's as if you've slipped out of time a little bit. Yeah. Or the, the, the time is somehow different. I remember the night of December the 26th, the evening of 
1985 when we had that I had that big close encounter experience we took a walk that evening me and my wife and son and it was just absolutely exquisite it was absolutely silent there were it was snow on the ground and there were flakes of snow dropping down and when they touched like the back of your gloves they were like you know when you look under a microscope at a snowflake it's a very beautiful intricate crystalline structure these were big you could see them with the naked eye and they were all like that it was one of the most beautiful moments and i remember annie saying it's so quiet and it was yeah and then later that evening I guess in the early morning hours, it wasn't so quiet anymore at all. So this comes, it brings a kind of sense of the sacred with it. But is it yeah. a dangerous sacred or not? I, I, me personally, I think it, it's, it's both. Because we do, I, do, I don't speak to many people who have had positive experiences, but obviously people do, Whitley. Uh, and, but I never did. and. The, the this disjointed reality that that we're, we're thrust into. It, I, I I often wonder: is it the phenomena that's impressing that upon us, or, or, or is it is it just the correct conditions? Every the, all the ingredients are correct for the for for the the feelings for the for the phenomena for everything to take place. I would imagine I've, I'm I'm. I'm probably uh, struggling with this one because I, I've thought about it so many times and you'd think I'd have an answer for what happened. I go through these scenarios, what happened to me as a child. And this sounds ridiculous. Probably every night when I've got a bit of silent time on my own in bed, I really do because I'm trying to move forward with them and I never can. And I have said before that, you know, it's, it's not really until it was over that you realise it's actually happened. Uh, I probably sound a bit mixed up, and this is not normally like me when I'm doing podcasts. It's just the fact that my own experiences come totally confuse me. We're here to struggle with this together and let the viewers and listeners see and hear this 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 journey. Um, and you, when you're in this situation, you you somehow or another find yourself aware that it's over yeah that that's the exact thing i mean yes yeah. you, you 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 come the realization that it's over is the moment that you 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 gather in as much as you can about what's just happened because right. when you're absorbed in it you're trapped and you you've not the thought processes just don't work correctly well let's talk before we go on a little bit about the concept of the seventh sense what do you think of that? I mean, you, you mention it and you bring it up. What to you is the seventh sense? Because I think we're, we're in that sort of realm right now talking. Okay. About well, I think a prime example of what we'll call the seventh sense, a story that I wrote about quite detailed in, in what Trooper of Four was the, the Broxa Forest incident where three men who decided they were going to go wild camping. They travelled 120 miles from their home. They'd looked at this area on maps, and it was in a deep ravine, 800-foot uh, ravine, in, where in places they had to go down on the bottoms with all their equipment, and they got there quite late. And 
it's something they've done many times, not in this ravine, but in various locations around the United Kingdom for three to four days of wild camping and just enjoying time together uh, as, as good friends, eating food, maybe having a few beers and fishing primarily. And there was a river in the bottom of this ravine, the River Derwent. But they're not interested in unexplained phenomena whatsoever. So when they get down there, it's starting to get dark. And it's took them an hour to an hour and a half to get in there. They, they can't, they're a bit sh sketchy on the time, but I would have said about an hour and 20 minutes because we've done it three or four times since. They light a fire and the, we interviewed two of them for Wolfland, but the third witness will not go on film. And it's the third witness that was key, in my opinion. <clears throat> before anything happened, for an hour before anything happened, and that both men, Steve and Jim, agree it was an hour, we'll call him Witness X, he's saying, I don't like it. We have to go. We're being watched. I don't like it. We need to go. And they're kind of looking at this guy. He's in his late 40s, heavily built man, you know, big sturdy kind of guy, over six foot tall, and they're thinking, this isn't like him. What's the matter with him? And he's getting really, really nervous. And he's saying, you know, we need to go. And Jim said the thought, <clears throat> we've just spent all this time getting into this ravine, it's now just about dark, and the thought of getting out in the darkness, uh, it, 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 it just weren't worth considering. They, they, everything were there, they'd got everything set up. So it perceived something, and an hour passed, and then in the darkness, and I think it was the same guy who'd been saying there's something watching us, said, look, and in the distance, and I went, I've since measured this, of course, we've been in forest with them. I took a surveyor's tape in, and it's approximately 32 feet away. Two huge amber eyes lit up, and they were self-illuminating. So we've got some kind of bioluminescence going off here, and they were amber, shape of human eyes. And uh, Jim said, you know. In the shape of human eyes, but larger, or I didn't huge. know. He said they were huge. He said he's exactly. He said his exact analogy was, I was trying to find an animal, and we've got him on film for the documentary Wolfland saying this, I was trying to find an animal to assign these eyes to, because I, I, he said, I, I was worried, he said, because I thought, is it a cat? But then they're too big. Uh, the eyes are simply too big and they're too far apart. He said, the only thing I could think with the eyes set so far apart would be something like a cow. But he said, but then again, he said, they're about three foot off the ground. He said, and I'm looking at these eyes and we're, we're all looking and thinking, what could they be? And they're just stationary in the darkness. He said, and all the time, Witness X is getting more and more agitated, more and more frightened. Excuse me. And to the point where they think he's going to run off in, into the night. And in the end, another 45 minutes has passed. I don't know the exact time quickly. He said, I stood up and I walked a few steps towards this, making a few hissing and shooing sounds and the eyes disappeared. He said, and I thought, thank God for that. That's, that's the end of it. He said, and I turned round to look at Steve and Witness X and I, and th their jaws had dropped. He said, and I could see them in firelight. He said, and I knew something was wrong. He says, and when I turned back, he says, these eyes from being three foot off, off the ground were now seven foot in the air. 
Oh, my it's, God. The, 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 the story is incredible. But, it, I mean, I can elaborate on it a little bit if you want. Well, and, let's uh, do that. Let's do that. But let's do that after the break. We're going okay. to take a break for our free Dreamlanders, and we'll be right back. We're talking to Paul Sinclair, his YouTube channel, where you can watch and participate in his live shows, is Truth Proof. His new book is Truth Proof 4, Beyond Reasonable Doubt, which goes beyond Paul's own experiences, which we've talked about many times on the show, into the general high-level strangeness of this remarkable area in the north of England. And his website, of course, is truthproof.co.uk. Now, we were talking, you were just as we uh, left the air, these eyes had gone seven, seven feet into uh, the air. Literally, yeah. So and tell us more. So he, he turns around, he sees the eyes. They can see the full figure of this thing now. And... He said, now I'm scared. He said, now I don't know what it is, and I'm scared. He said, there's not a full moon or anything. He said, but there's a bit of moonlight, and we can see it. the, the silhouette of this, this huge creature bipedal stood looking at us in the darkness. He said it was stooped slightly forward, a bit like an American footballer would. He said it was absolutely terrifying. Now, what? I don't know if we've put in, in Wolflands the documentary, but and we maybe should, but what, what we didn't add was that Witness X, uh, we'll, we'll go into detail of the description of it in a minute, was saying to the, to Steve and Jim, it doesn't want you here. It doesn't want you here, Jim. It wants you to go. And then he looked at Steve, and it, and it said Steve's surname. He says, and you, Clarkie, it doesn't want you here. It wants you to go. So that implies to me that there's some kind of, I wouldn't say mind speak, but there's some kind of communication being imparted to this witness who's not gone yeah. on camera. Yeah, but, if, uh, but look, here's what's going on here. He, he's saying it wants the other two people to go. Yes, it doesn't want you here. Leaving him alone with it. Yes, yeah. Uh, that that. So in other words, it's saying get the other witnesses out of here yeah. Did they leave? Or did no, I they ask? Would, they, they, wouldn't, goodness. they wouldn't leave him quickly. You know, like they said, it were an hour, close to an hour and a half to get in, getting out in pitch darkness. And plus, they, they're looking at something that's absolutely monstrous. They said, both Steve and Jim, we thought it was growling at us, but we realized it was its breathing. We could, it was breathing that heavily and that strongly. And Steve said it. Because I asked them both, I said, well, what was it? What were you actually looking at? He goes, and Steve, I'm, I'm, I'm fairly good at remembering people's conversations, and it will come up in the film anyway. And, and Steve went, it were a werewolf. He said, and then Jim said, it were a dog, a dog in the shape of a man. He said, but it were just monstrously huge. He said, it, 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 it had kind of got capped shoulders and... You could see everything on it, but it's covered in fur. And Steve said, when it stood up, he said, because Jim didn't see it stand up. He said, when it stood up, the eyes rose perfectly. His exact words, like a machine. He said, it was just as though somebody had put two ping pong balls in water and it, this thing rose up. 
So its These movements guys, were not like the movements of a human being or an animal. You would have seen. No, something. no, no, no. So it was. And, a, it was a, something right at the edge of the supernatural. I would think. I, I think totally. And just, I mean, well, I can continue with this story, but I just like to say, please do. They're in a. They're in a forest called Broxa Forest. In some cultures, a Broxa is a shapeshifter. How have we in the UK? managed to have a forest called Broxa Forest. It's very close, Whitley, to a... They, they were within half a mile of some of burial mounds and some earthworks, and in particular, Moor Rig. Now, a rig is an outcrop of stone, but Moor is, pardon the pun, more important because it is spelt M-A-W. And in Norse mythology, the moor is associated with Fenrir, the Viking hound of hell that brought about Ragnarok and, and, and the Viking end of times. Fenrir ate Odin, the god Odin, which, which is interesting. We've got that connotation to the wolf very close to where to Moor Rig, even closer to where the guys were, you know, the three men. We've got War's man's head. So we've got W.A.R.S. man's head. In Norse mythology, a warg was a wolf. So if we remove the S and put a G, it becomes Wolfman's head. It, and then all, all surrounding it, we've got Howl Moor, Wolf How, Wolf How Low, Wolf How High. Obviously, we've got connotations to the wolf because wolves would have been prevalent in ancient times. But the, there's so many unusual facets to the story. And this thing, jumping back to the guys, this thing watched them all night, stood watching them to the point where Steve said, I wanted it to be over. The, 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 the fear that it was put in upon them, he said, I, we all huddled, but we could, I could still see the eyes in my peripheral. He said, now just wanted to die. I, you, I, you, you, you go on a camping trip. It's wild camping, which in, that means camping in a place that's not designed for camping. In 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 uh, in the U.S., we call it guerrilla camping. Okay. Um, and you're gonna you're expecting a nice peaceful time. You're going to a place that's difficult to get to that nobody else will be at, and instead and then, you end up <laughs> hounded by a werewolf. Well, it, bad luck. Well, it, totally. You would think because th there's a there's a path leading through this uh, that goes to a place called Langdale End, and mountain bikers do come through it. Now, what we've found out now for Wolflands, we've interviewed one guy who's gone on film, and he's been paced for three quarters of a mile by something huge running through the undergrowth at the side of him. But now we've got another three stories. We, we just don't have room to include them in the film from mountain bikers who've seen and experienced similar things. So the, the, it's not we just... Go on, you've mentioned, wait a minute, Paul. You've mentioned the documentary so many times. Can you yep. tell us a little bit about what you're doing and when we might hope to see it, et cetera, and so forth? Because I know my listeners and watcher viewers are curious. We're doing a documentary called Wolflands, and primarily it's about the cryptid phenomena. Uh, but I also want to show the, the links, not necessarily links as in cryptids flying about in UFOs, but links by location of other phenomena occurring within, within the same places. So Wolflands got independent witnesses, uh, 
from lots of different locations around the UK, but who've had experiences in eastern North Yorkshire with cryptids. And more importantly, in these same areas, and they don't know each other, these people, none of them do. And th th I think that's what makes it even more interesting, because regardless of whether we want to believe these things are real, we've got, I think we've nine witnesses in Wolflands. It's not your standard documentary where they sit across having a coffee in a cafe talking about what they saw and then having a little bit of animated cartoon creature. We've spent we've spent two years on it on a low budget, but with a lot of a lot of care and attention. And we've we've spent a lot of time on Wolflands. Let's put it this way. And it's gathered a lot of interest and uh, we're really excited about it. Hopefully it, it will be out. It will be ready this year. I would I would think it will. Uh, we've just done another promo because I'm talking at the Awakening Conference in Blackpool in June, on June the 24th, and we're going to be running the promo there, and I'll be doing a talk about Wolflands. That's what they've asked me to do, and, uh, yeah, that's where, where we're going to go with it. So, And, and that's, that's what you sort of call the area, isn't it? Because this wolf... Does the does this creature ever... Is it ever associated with anything violent happening to people? We don't know. I mean, these guys never, apart from the feelings of ultimate terror, they didn't experience any savagery from this thing. Uh, so so I've, I've nothing to say that anybody's been harmed. What It's hard to say what we're looking at. Let's assume it is something from another realm. It could be that, that ex, uh, overlap of existences, should we say. Let's imagine it being a bit like that. It's... It's not even capable of doing that. It might be just as confused looking at them three guys as they were looking at it. You know, the, the, I mean, Steve, one of the witnesses said, if you would have asked me to draw a werewolf, I would not have drawn that. No, he said, no of way. course not. He said it was ridiculous. He says its ears were too big. They were stuck up above its head, pointed, but really big. He said, and every so often it would turn to the right. He says, and its muzzle looked almost looked like Wiley Coyote. He said it were ridiculous. <laughs> so... You Seriously, know, it occurs to me that, you know, everyone always talks about if only a UFO would land on the White House lawn. What if that came out of it? What would we do yeah, then? Can you imagine? Can you know, I've I've only got one one account of something. And I think I might have spoke to you about it before. What we call the hairy Chewbacca's in, in a forest just up from these forests. Yeah, talk about the hairy Chewbacca's They're 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 not they're a little bit more reassuring in some ways than the the strange comical and yet ominous wolf werewolf yeah yeah right okay then so a, a father takes his two children camping we'll call it wild camping again to a place called Pinchin Fort Pinchin Fort Forest way up the coast uh, on the on the North Yorkshire coast he finds a place that he thinks suitable and sets his tent in front of a dry stone wall. He says there's cattle in field at the other side. Not that that's of any bearing. He said, and it's a bit sludgy. He says, we go for a little walk into the forest. He said, and uh, well, it's a bit sludgy. So I tell the children to take the shoes off and before they get into the tent. We have a bite to eat and we settle down. It's not late. He says, it's only like night between nine and ten. And he settles down with his two children. He said, the children are asleep, he said, and then he becomes aware, well, we're jumping back to it again here, Whitley, that everything's gone very, very quiet and, and kind of static. It's weird, like electric feeling in the air. He said, then 
he heard a movement outside, branches cracking, a few noises, and then the zip of the tent came down. Said and opened it up, he says, and a fur-covered arm came inside the tent and went towards his child. He said, but it with the thing that was he said, no, skinny. I just have to say, that would have been a little scary. Yeah. Oh, he said, God. it's thin. He said, and he, he, it looks at him. And as it looks at him, he, he realizes that the dad into sleep and it touches him on the forehead and he blacks out. That's the, So that's the story. And then he comes to again, being carried across some fields, this guy says, and there's a UFO. This is the only story I've got connected to UFOs. It's not in Wolflands. There's a UFO. When he comes to, he's touched again on the forehead and he blacks out. Now, where the story becomes interesting, because he woke up the next morning and thought that was the strangest dream. That were really, really weird. And he's laid there. He's in his tent, a bit disheveled. And the children wake up and they said, Dad, 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 last night uh, we had a dream. We were being carried across some fields by some hairy Chewbacca's. So they've had a, either had a shared dream or, or that it's been a real experience. And the, the, the final ingredient, he said the inside of the tent, which they'd taken the shoes off because there was a bit of sludge and leaves, was covered in sludge and leaves. So they had been, they had been out of the tent. So did, did they know, ever? Would they ever try hypnosis or anything? Uh, not for the children, but for him, maybe. May do, may do. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's not something that I've I've broached with him at all. But uh, interesting, nevertheless, it's it's an unusual one. As I say, I don't know whether you've had stories of other. We, we know what we talk about the alien beings within the crafts, but things that have I don't know more. Rustic, should we say, the fur covered. Rustic, yeah, that's a great oh, word. I don't know how else to well, describe you know, it. The, the thing that's quite clear to me is that they can control what you remember. In other words, your memories are not necessarily of what happened. Your memories are, they have the ability to design memories yeah. so that when you do remember something, that has to do with them, you might be only sort of uh, running a film that they created and that you you don't know what's behind it. Did and, you know um, you I, I know that the, the little gray people have a very sardonic sense of humor, and I, I can see them wanting people to believe that in weird, gigantic, absurd-looking werewolves and Chewbacca's and stuff like that very easily. So you just don't know what really went on. But it could also be this is such a huge universe, and we know so little about how it works. These could be real beings uh, that that have somewhere have homes and uh, live beneath the rising and falling of another sun. You don't know. It's very true. Yeah, it's very true. And, and, you know, you, you, you brought something up then about the, the, the ch changed s images and changed reality. And as as a child, you know, uh, I, w I remember waking up when we lived in this little house in Old Denneby. And I remember waking up in the early morning. It, it must have been summer because it was daylight. And I could see two tall, thin, well, for want of a better word, alien beings 
stood looking at me and 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 some smaller ones and they were hideous they were terrifying and i turned away i turned away and buried my face in in the pillow or whatever for a small child i don't know six or seven years old it sent like an eternity but when i turned back i was looking at the people from my mum and dad's wedding album i was looking at my nan and granddad and I was looking at people who I didn't know but were in the wedding album. It was almost as though they'd flicked through some images in my head like a filing cabinet. That's as close as I can do because it were a picture of people. But they were there in front of me from the wedding album. And uh, I, I can remember it as clear and as sharp as, as the day I saw it. And that was to pacify me, I believe, I don't, because I was so frightened when I actually woke up and saw what I was looking at. And uh, is that what you're talking about, an example of them manipulating the mind? Because I don't think yeah. they changed. Yeah, exactly. There is something there. But we, oh, you know what? We have, we have a break. But instead of a break okay. this time, folks, I want to talk to everybody, the subscribers as well as the ones who, don't, who are just listening on the free side, which is fine. I welcome you. Don't ever think otherwise. Uh, but subscribers, why don't you tell your friends about the site? Because things are changing so much. It used to be that this site was uh, harmed or, or, or diminished by the fact that people didn't want to tell their friends about this. And I don't blame them. I, you know, I, God knows. I mean, I, what happened to me with that after I published Communion? I would think twice now about publishing it if I had known what would happen. But with all that has happened, with all of the UFO material that's been released by the government, and now the release of material saying that, yes, we know the abductions are real, which we, uh, we that was a story on Unknown Country on uh, April the 11th. The, the, this is something to be proud of. It's not something to be ashamed of or to hide and it's time for the bullying to stop so tell your friends if you're a subscriber tell them it's worth doing and you are standing up on behalf of a very real experience that you had both the good fortune and the misfortune to have okay now let's get back and we there's so much to talk about in truth proof for uh, this this uh let's you know let's let's sort of move on to another story the wonderful story of Eddie the taxi driver who said to you uh i don't know if you'd be interested in what i have to say and of course you said oh, certainly i'll be interested and there followed a remarkable story is that the cat sighting? Yes, it's the cat sighting in December of 2018, uh, the, where he, he was driving back from a drop-off in Harwood Dale yep, just past yep. midnight. Okay, you got it. Well, what's interesting as well, Whitley, is Harwood Dale is literally a stone's throw from Broxa Forest. So so what we've got here... Uh, what we would term as alien big cats and not alien in the term that uh, we've just been talking about, but they're not sort of native to the UK, although it seems like they are now. 
And we've got breeding big cats, panthers and pumas in these forests. And this guy's driving, as he said, he's driving through this remote area. I think he'd, if memory serves me right, I think he'd come close to a place called East Hayton. But, um, and he, I've obviously seen a big black panther, but he's not the only person to have seen these things, Whitley. And I don't know whether, I, th I think the majority of these cats have just got a drink here. You'll have to come in a little bit. Oh, thank you. Sorry about that. Uh, I think the majority of these cats obviously are living, breed, breeding pairs of cats within the UK, uh, very close to where Eddie, the, the taxi driver, saw the cat a farmer. A lady told me that she was tending to her sheep at Harwood Dale. And, yeah, and yet these cats can never be pinned down. It's, you know, there's, it, it, there's places in the United States that have the same exact type of cats. I think, uh, if I'm not correct, Southern Ohio is a hotbed of these cats and people see them. They make videos of them every once in a while and they seem perfectly normal, like big black panthers. But the thing is, a black is a very rare color for a panther in and, our and, world. And, uh, uh, they do happen, obviously, but you'd think that there would somewhere some evidence hard evidence of the existence, if only hairs or spore or uh, a, a, even a dead animal would be Do you know, you're, you're so right. You, you really are, because when we look at wildlife documentaries and they talk about the snow leopards and, you know, in their native habitats and they say they're the, the rarest cats in the world, but they managed to get them and they managed to find them in, I wouldn't say great numbers, but numerous snow leopards or, or tigers in, in, in the deep jungles and forests and they managed to get these on film and you, you, you're right we, we don't have as much sort of forest and we don't have no jungle here in the united kingdom yet people are seeing these cats all over the place and particularly in the forests of north yorkshire i need to say that there are over 500 square miles of forest interspersed with moorland in this area but they're being seen and crossing roads like you know, the taxi driver and this, they've been seen on with regularity. So you would think you would see cubs. You would think you would see evidence of where they've made a den. And but we're not seeing that. You're, you're correct. If we jump to Bempton, it close to where I live, there's a lane called Short Lane. I've spoke about it many times and written about it in all three books because it's a totally unassuming single track road with. Uh, Crops on either side, left and right, uh, into broken hawthorn hedges, six foot of edge and then a gap of 20 foot and then another. There's nothing. Basically, what I'm saying is there's, it's devoid of anything. But the, the newspaper archives going back 20, 30 years report big cats seen on short lane, big black cats. You see, so one part of me, Paul Sinclair, says I think the breeding populations are are in these areas, there's pockets of them breeding, uh, because obviously in 1976 when they dissolved the wild, the, when they brought in the wild animal laws, anybody who'd been keeping these exotic pets, a lot of people released them. But even that doesn't stand up when you think about it, Whitley, because the average life of a big cat is about 15 to 17 years in the wild. So we've, we've gone way past that, although we do realise that two of anything can breed if they're opposites. 
But jumping back to Short Lane, we shouldn't be seeing black cats on Short Lane. We've literally got nothing but farmland either side that's just low grass or whatever crop they've got in. Yet people over the years have reported, and I don't just mean one or two, lots of reports of motorists and people walking who've seen black panthers on Short Lane. How is that? It's almost as though there's these cats are something else you know i have played with a theory which is that there are animals that can jump back and forth between parallel universes and it's just a theory but you know big bigfoot is the same way you can't you you know it's i i know people who are who want to keep their stories quiet who have had just incredible, detailed, close-up Bigfoot sightings. I'm always trying to get them on the show, but so far, no cigar. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I, I have to say that they've seen, one man has seen this, one of these things, just disappear before his eyes. And, you know, if you evolve, if you evolved an ability if there is a parallel universe right here, one of an incredible defense mechanism would be to evolve an ability to go back and forth between them. Yeah. And I just wonder if some of those animals haven't done something very much like that. Do you know, Whitley, you, you, you've kind of hit the nail on the head and it's that the theory that you're playing with. Uh, I don't mean it's one I've played with. It's one I've thought about, uh, you know, I do think it's plausible to believe that the cats could be in the UK and breeding and surviving in certain pockets. But I, but I also struggle to understand why they would be seen in, in such numerous, uh, well, numerous accounts of them on, on short lane, for example, where there shouldn't be cats. We're, we're literally a stone's throw from the town. It just wouldn't happen. So, you know, you could be onto something with that. And there's a there's an American Indian who I've spoken to a few times called Larry Sespooch. And he talked to me about the skinwalker. When I were, I were after information regarding the Flixton werewolf, to be honest, but he's quite an authority on, on the skinwalker. I think he lives near skinwalker. And uh, he said that this this is a creature that has the ability to live between worlds. He said, but if you approach these things with good intent, then that is the way that the experience will go. And don't quote me word for word, but that's the way he was saying it, you know. And people can find Larry on YouTube and he's, he's, he talks about his ancestry and stuff. He's a really interesting well, guy. Hopefully he'll, they'll find him on Dreamland soon. He sounds like an ideal guest for us. Oh, it's fabulous, fabulous, yeah. Fabulous idea. Thank you for that. I'll certainly follow up with you after the show. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, folks, I'm going to be in uh, in England in uh, late May, and I'm going to, I'm planning to go up and, and be with uh, with Paul and go to some of these places, and I certainly will be taking a camera. So we'll see. We'll see what happens. Um, the now let's let's go on. Uh, you know, I want to I want to uh, talk about the the story of the pyramid. Kaz, uh, Kaz Clark. Yeah, she's she has. I want to interview her on this show, 
but so far I haven't had a response and she may be un, you know, she may be nervous about doing it. I have her book and, but in case we don't get an interview and even if we do, can you tell us a little bit about the Black Pyramid sighting? And, well, and I, I think I it's terribly important. Well, I can't go into dates and details simply because I don't have that knowledge, Whitley. Oh, but not not the kind of detail she has, but just yeah. the general story, which I know right. you know. Uh, well, basically, her and uh, her friend witnessed this huge, I mean, when, when she's talking about three football pictures long pyramid uh, that's depicted, I don't know if you've got a picture of it on cover at book because I think that's how she's described it. There's a military presence. Uh, it's called the Penturk Incident. And I think Cass Clark's the lady that can do this justice. And I did contact her again for you this morning, believe it or not, Willie. Uh, so we'll see where we go with that because she, she did want to speak. And they've had this experience. There's There's been activity and reports of ufo activity at the time but she's trying to gather more witnesses to come forward she it, she's been threatened she, the, the story's been suppressed but she's she's such a strong-willed person from what i can gather if people want to go to the truth proof live stream you'll be able to hear her talking about this you, the, the, there's a one, yeah, just just uh, there, there's a wonderful interview with Kaz on the Truth Proof live stream. It's extraordinary. But go ahead. Uh, well, you know, she, she she said people have come to her and said, "Well, why you? Why? What's special about you?" Uh, because she's not interested in UFOs, or she wasn't until she this happened, and uh, a, a children got threatened, or I think it were a daughter, and that's what set her down on this path. She says nobody's threatening my family, and and now she's there was a big military operation that was connected the, with it. Well, they've said they've said it was a military operation, uh, but basically, it wasn't. And what one of the she said this this thing this uh, pyramid. I'm mindful of the fact that I don't want to get a story wrong, but I think it was three luminous green barrel shaped objects came out of it. I'm not very aerodynamic people. I do realise that, but they came out of it, and they were pursued by helicopters. There were military aircraft around the area all of the time uh, while this, these sightings or this incident was occurring, and an helicopter shot one of these objects down. Now, she believes, I don't think she's had words imprinted in her head, but for some reason Kaz believes that these, these things were gods. That's seriously, that's it sounds it sounds incredible. But when you hear the lady talk and she talks with such passion and conviction that that some things affected her profoundly. It's just an incredible story in a place called Penturk in Wales. And uh, I really think that, well, I, I need to push Cass Clark to get on Whitley's show so that she, she can impart this knowledge to your listeners. Yeah, because I have, I, I like to think that there probably isn't anybody else who can interview her quite in the way I can. I think you're right. I'm pretty sure that would be true. And, uh, and, but I must say that your interview of her on your show is excellent. And there's also, by extension, nobody who can interview her in quite the way you can because of what you know and have experienced. And, you know, we must never forget that Paul's life, tell us about, there's, 
and and I know you've said this on the show before, but we all have short-term memory loss. And uh, no, we don't really. But and I know the story. But just tell us briefly about what got you into this, because I think it's so important that stories like this be told and be repeated, because they are these initiating incidents are so critical in all of our lives. If we're starting at childhood, are we, Whitley? Or we're starting yeah, with yeah, the book? Yeah, yeah, Ch- yeah. Childhood. Because I think you're responsible for books in part. But anyway, childhood. Uh, obviously, children don't keep a diary. So I'm looking at in between four and six years old. And my father wakes me up, which is unusual. He's a very strict kind of guy, my dad. And uh, when I went to bed, I went to bed. But he woke me up. And he's he wants to show me something. And we live in this little house in, in a village called Old Denaby that overlooks the town of Mexborough. So these places can be found if you if you want to Google them. There were a power station on the right-hand side and the two cooling towers. Now, at the side of the cooling tower in the night, halfway up the cooling towers or maybe just a bit lower, there's a sphere of lemony white light that looks like it's turning. It looks like a moon, to be honest, but it's obviously not as big as a moon. And he's, he's got binoculars on it and... Gives me the binoculars and we're watching it and it slowly travels along the rooftops of the houses. Not literally people, but that's what it does. So with the full length of Mextra, Mexper and I can see all these rooftops. And about halfway into this journey, my dad leaves me. I don't know why. Um, he maybe went downstairs. He, he smoked. So he maybe went for a cigarette outside and to watch it. And then I watch it and it goes all the way and it's gone to Swinton, the next town. And I, I don't know it's a UFO. I don't know what it is. My dad's not called it a UFO. I think he said it was a weather balloon. Uh, but anyway, that's that. But after that, things happened. Things began to happen. I don't know whether there was some connection made. I've really no idea. But things, I would wake up in the night and there were, there were beings. I don't know. And I don't mean every night. I've got little cameos, broken cameos of events throughout my childhood of these small, almost fetal-like in in appearance beings. And they're watching me. And you'd you'd wake up and they'd be there. These weren't dreams. And you'd look at them. And and the strangest thing, I, I remember waking up on two occasions and they stood up. Well, they're actually in my bed. So there's almost it's like transparent, like a hologram. It's looking back. I've I've seen them sparkling. I saw I, I, I looked into the eyes of one of them, and I still think it's the most. And I don't mean the 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 grey things that I saw that were terrifying. I'm on about the, the eyes of this thing that was at side of me, and I still remember looking into its eyes and and thinking that it was the most beautiful amazing like i could see forever and i'd jump into them eyes to now and never come back kind of feeling i would just i can't even imagine it i can't i can't imagine it but i can't i can't imagine anything that could replicate it that's the that's what i mean to say but then there were other times that's the only two positive experiences seeing these this being with these eyes that was in it was sparkling it was full of life it were almost like looking and I'm sorry if this sounds crude, people, but when you know look at things under a microscope and you you see it all swirling, it was almost like that's what I was looking into in in the 
in the head or in the sphere of this this being it was just incredible but that's the only two positives that some i would wake up in the night and you'd feel the presence of something in the room and you knew it were getting closer and closer and then there'd be voices that were on my shoulder i didn't feel weight on my shoulder but it would it it were repeating words in language i couldn't understand that was absolutely terrifying i think the voices were more frightening than actually seeing the the gray spindly fetal like beings and i went i'm no no shame in saying it now, Willie. I wet the bed till I was 14, 13 years old, probably. It, it seemed to stop at around that age. Because of this, the stress of this. Now, yeah, when you say it was a language you can't, can't understand, you know, I'm not so sure that we don't understand these languages, and I'll tell you why. People would occasionally, when we were, especially when we were at our country house and there were other people there, and Anne and I were in the living room and, you know, we were, people were out walking and stuff and uh, we were chatting together. If they came up to the house, they would hear us talking what sounded to one of them who was a f teacher of languages, Gaelic. And, right. but here's the thing. Neither one of us speaks a word of Gaelic. We don't speak Gaelic at all. And, but, but we, when we were alone, we spoke Gaelic together for some unknown reason. And Strange. I think that we have hidden languages that were maybe part of a hidden world, that we yeah. ourselves are projections from the world that you and I are discussing. And so I'll bet you, you actually did understand those words, and that's yeah. why it was so terrifying. Yeah, yeah you, you you could be right quickly and you know those things i'll not obviously i'm not going to say my grandson's name but well we've got eight grandchildren and uh with i don't impress any of this upon them the mums and dads wanted to thank me for doing it i can assure you yeah. but uh, a few years ago uh one of my daughters jessica she rang me and she said she said you know dad she said, we're really worried she said why is that uh she said well our grandson, we'll call him Jim. It's not, isn't it? Not called Jim. He said, he's, he says, you know, Nick puts him to bed on a night. He puts him to bed and we, we lay a bump on the floor. You don't know, either when we're in bed or just, but late at night. And we'll go into his room, lift him in bed. This would have been when he were about four. And say, so, you know, and the really good parents, they're both teachers and, and says, come on, darling, you, you know, you, Let's get in the middle of the bed because that's why you're falling out. You're on the edge. And he says, I can't, Daddy. He said, why? He says, because of the man. He says, what do you mean because of the man? He said, because of the man. He says, he, and his beds are tied to a wall, his other side. He said, he comes out of a hole in the wall. He says, and he picks me up. He said, and he said the strangest thing. He said, he tries to eat me, but he doesn't eat me. And we go through the hole in the wall. and But then he puts me back. It, and and this went on. Oh, it must have gone on for about six months, and then all of a sudden it stopped. You know, I mean, that little lad's eight or nine now, yeah. and he's not he's not mentioned it, and nobody's mentioned it to him. But no, exactly, uh, you can't do that. You can't no. you can't engage them. We didn't. We were very careful with our son, but I'll never forget 
when I was so concerned about these strange, before the communion experience, I was very concerned about strange things happening around the house, and I'd bought guns and an alarm system and all kinds of things. And suddenly, uh, he started telling about these little doctors that would take him out onto the porch and give him examinations of his something under his skin. And I was simply appalled. They went cold. <laughs> yeah, it was horrifying. And, but I could do nothing about it. No. And I, you know, it's, I, so I really sympathize very much here. Well, yeah. listen, free dreamlanders, we have come to the end of our time together. Subscribers, when we go on, and I am trying to tempt you, free dreamlanders, to go on with us. All you have to do is go to unknowncountry.com, click on the subscribe tab and get started. Uh, we're going to go to what I think is beautifully described in Truth Proof 4 as a timeless outer nowhere. We've often discussed time slips on this show, and we're getting into it in an entirely new way. So free listeners, thank you so much for being with us as always. I'm so grateful for your participation and your interest. And subscribers, we will just keep on keeping on, and I'm even more grateful for you. We're going to be talking about a gentleman who goes by the name of Ted Greenwood. And I think when you hear the story, you'll understand why he prefers that his name, his real name, not be used. Can you tell us, let's start with Ted's time slip. Yes, it is quite incredible. And do you know <clears throat> a bit of geography of the, <clears throat> excuse me, a bit of geography of the area before I tell you about it. 18 miles out from where we do our observations for the unexplained lights, from where the cryptids are occurring within a few mile radius of where we're looking at the lights, 18 nautical miles out is a magnetic anomaly. And it only says is said to exist in this location. You know, the old maps say it, but a lot of the trawlermen who I know who will work the area, Ted being one of them, uh, I've come across the magno magnetic anomaly once in a fishing lifetime. Some have never come across it. Some have come across it two or three times, as in they've gone out to their fishing ground. Compasses have gone awire. Radios won't work. Nothing works. Sounders won't work. And then they pass over the anomaly, come back, and everything's fine, and that's fine now for another 10 years. That's how this works, whether that's where it happened this particular day. So what Ted had done, he was taking a party of anglers out to a place called the Ten Wrecks. I hope I've got that right, the Ten Wrecks. And, uh, it, and it, it literally was about 10 to 15 miles out. And it sounds a bit vague, that. but um, So they leave Bridlington Harbour and they go down to what's called the Head End, Flamborough Head. It's a five-mile ridge of rock, point of rock that sticks out into the North Sea. Uh, it's... It, it's steeped in strangeness, people, because cutting across that five-mile strip, strip of rock is Dane's Dyke, the ancient earthworks where people have reported the cryptids. And the, but, but for the purpose of Whitley's talk, I must stay with the, with Ted. He said, so we set off this morning 
he said we'd baited up at about four in the morning we'd got buckets full of bait for the anglers and then this fishing party they all arrive and they set off i think he said the the total journey from leaving bridlington harbour to going to flamborough head then to stop somewhere else to do a bit of mackerel fishing and then go to the the, the wrecks would have been about three and a half hours and they, they've got it all plotted on this chart plotter so they can't really go wrong they, you know you, even if you're out and you've got no nowhere to look at you know like you say no that's that street or that location in north sea you're just looking at blue i'd be totally lost but the plotter takes them so they've done all that and ted said it we'd been up at a late night and then being up early doing this he said so i thought i'm going to leave my son to skipper the boat and he's not a teenager he's in his 20s and qualified to do it he says and we've got this party of eight, eight or so men who've come for it paid for a day's fishing he said now nah, i got my head down I, got, I, I thought i'm gonna have a few hours sleep on wheelhouse and that's exactly what i did he said and uh, i've not been asleep long he said it's only like we've gone to flamborough head he said and he's shaking me my son he's shaking me dad dad wake up wake up he said what's the matter what's the problem he says we're here he says, and I thought, we can't be. He said, but I didn't have time to process these thoughts because I started to look around me and everything in a full 360 is a golden colour. He said, it's it's almost like the, the sky's behind it. There's, there must be a sun behind it. There must be a clear sky behind it. He said, but everywhere's golden. And the, the sea is like molten plastic it's sort of like all oily but it's not oil he said it's flat calm he said the other thing i noticed but i didn't notice till i till i didn't think about till later there's no seagulls nothing he said when you've got buckets full of bait when you leave that arbor a cloud of seagulls follow you he said because they know there's food he says and as fast as you're casting out there's bits of bait flying off. You're dragging fish in. He said they they follow the food. There's not a bird. There's no sound. He said the radios didn't work. There's no radio communication. He says I've got a radar uh, that I, I, I can set for five miles, ten miles, up to a fifty mile radius. He says and I've got it set at ten. It's not finding anything. He says it would find a boat, a big, you know, a vessel. He said, but it's not finding anything. He says, we're about 12 miles, or we should have been off, because we're at Big Ridge, off Bempton Cliffs. So I set it to 15 miles, not finding anything, nothing. Set it to 20. He says, and, and you know the procedure. He says, I set it to 50 miles, there's nothing. He said, I'm beginning to think we're in eye of a hurricane. He said, that's all I can think, and I'm starting to get worried. He said, because I've never experienced anything like it. He says, well, I don't want to panic the guys on the, the boat. He says, I told, I th they arrived in, in uh, uh, less than two hours, I believe. They'd got, there an, oh, they'd got there an hour and 20 minutes earlier. And I said, well, is there any way that you could have done that? He said, there's absolutely no chance. That boat's got one speed. It's a diesel engine. He said, there's just not, not a chance in the world. And when, as they left the, the harbour, Another boat came out behind them and that boat obviously should have been there as well. But we'll get to that one in a moment, Whitley. He said, so I'm, I'm, I'm starting to panic, but I told the guys, bait up, we're fishing. He says, and that's what they were doing. He says, and we've never caught cod 
like it ever. He says they're literally pulling out 10 and 20 pound cod. He says just one after another. He says it's just unbelievable that they're catching these fish. He says, but I'm worried. I'm not. He says, I look at the plotter, <clears throat> which is interesting because I wanted, I wanted the, the paperwork from the plotter, Whitley, and I, I, hopefully he might be able to get it. He said, because it shows we've been stationary for 15 minutes in a spot, stationary again for 15 minutes in a spot, uh, and though we've jumped, it's not shown a line. He said, I, I can't understand it at all. He said, and, uh, like I said, he said I'm, I'm really worried. He said, and then the fact that uh, there's no other boats around. He said, and all of a sudden, he said, radio crackles. Suddenly I've got a message and I, and I can see the boat that followed us out. And he's, he's, in their terminology, steaming towards us. He said, we were going to ring the, the other skipper of the other boat said we were going to ring the coast guard he said uh, we kind of saw you and when we looked again you'd gone he said he said we, we thought you'd sunk and well he said obviously i haven't we're here he says how long you been here and he said oh we've been here about an hour and 20 minutes an hour an hour and a half or whatever i don't know time now and i know i've written it but i haven't got that information in front of me and which the guys said impossible you couldn't have been the other fishermen told him they, they had so we've not got uh, a loss of time. We've got advanced time. And, and Ted's words were, as, the only thing I could think is that we'd gone into some kind of vortex. And, uh, you know, it, it's, it's, it's not messed him up or frightened him for fishing or doing his job. But it's, it's one, I mean, I've known the guy quite a lot of years, Whitley. And uh, it's one that he only told me a couple of years ago. And I think, well, I've known him almost 30 years. And he only told me this a few years ago. And obviously, he didn't, this didn't occur 30 years ago either. But it's, he's known me that long. But the trawlermen are like that. You know, miners are like that. They're very, I wouldn't say secretive, but they're kind of clannish. And you keep, keep the things close to themselves. Yeah. The, and he, goodness knows how many other people in his, other fishermen in the area have had similar experiences and also sometimes have them without noticing it. Yeah. That, yeah. You know, that have that without noticing it. What I find interesting, Whitley, is, is his description of the sky. He's, he's, you know, he's, he's, his words were, it looked the color of a golden Labrador dog. I mean, it's not the description no. I would give or you, you would give, but that, he said, and it were a full 360 as though there were a dome over us. He says, there weren't. Oh, and, and when the radios come back on, he said, the sea started to become choppy and like normal, and seagulls were everywhere. So it's as though they've just snapped back into our reality and they've been in some kind of altered reality. That's the only thing I can think. I think. If Ted's telling the truth, and I've heard it from his son as well, then we've and we've got to jump. Stop sit. I, me personally, it's got to not sit on the fence and say, "Yeah, they did have an experience of entering some other reality." Yeah, a, another reality with much better fishing too. With better fishing, yeah, bigger yeah. god. <laughs> yeah, it's so wonderfully weird. Now we have, gosh, you've you know he. I have to tell you, folks, he, he has assembled so many good stories in here. And as you can hear, these are stories about a place and often people who Paul knows well. It's yeah. not, you know, it's not armchair research. This is, 
Ball has been everywhere that any of these things happened. And I, I really do, Whitley. You're absolutely right, and thank you for saying that. But really, this it's not armchair research. This is 5 a.m. this morning, and and I'll be writing things up when I've done done this. And it's it's nonstop, and I'm not regretting it. I love it, but it's nonstop. Yeah, you know, it's it's nonstop in my life too. I had a what I believe might have been some kind of a movement into a parallel universe at about. Uh, four o'clock this morning and now here we are talking about something like that happening to this fisherman it's just a very weird world folks what i'll explain to you is that i was awakened by a great deal of noise at four o'clock in the morning and there was work going on on the building next to ours next to mine it's quite close and I was, they were building some elaborate thing on the roof of the building. And I thought I would call my landlord because it was, it was, you know, it was pre-dawn hours. You can't do that at that hour. And I started to call him to phone. I picked up my phone to start to call him. And the next thing I knew, I was waking up. And... I didn't call him, and there is no construction whatsoever going on in that on that building. Nothing in this universe. Now, I I don't know why I would dream something like that. It's not a dream in a normal sense. Maybe it was a dream, but not a normal dream, certainly. And it, I've had actual physical movements into parallel universe right here in this flat and in and on the streets around here so it happens in a lot of places this stuff and the, you know so we're not armchair detectives armchair no. researchers at all either one of no, us not, not by any stroke let's, let's go up uh go on to the speed and figure of eight and Brian, if you will yeah that that that, that is really interesting uh, this this is a police officer Who's, who's got an interest in unexplained phenomena. Uh, more importantly, he's got an interest in the people that have gone missing on the clifftops. Uh, not necessarily unexplained phenomena related. I would like to stress that. But people have gone missing in unusual circumstances in these areas. I would never like to attach a UFO related story to a missing person. I don't think it's fair. But all I will say is I have written about these people in the truth proof books because they've gone missing in unusual circumstances. So that's why he was there. Now, before we met, he'd been onto the, based on the truth proof books, he'd been to the cliff tops himself and he travels a considerable distance, about a three hour drive uh, on, on, when he's got days off during the evening and he'll come quite late and he'd been there himself and he wanted to see if he could experience something or get a feel for the area. He'd been once and there was nothing. This, I believe this was his second visit. He arrived at, at the RSPB, the, the bird sanctuary, at about nine, ten o'clock at night, parked his car up and walked down to the cliffs, took a left and walked towards the old RAF base and on towards Speeton. That's the highest point that when you walk towards Speeton, be about two, one and a half miles away, 420 foot sheer rock face. They're not, you can't climb down them. There's only, 
if you if you're down then you, you there's no way out it's just end, end of the days kind of thing and there's no fence along Speeton as well so he's walking the dead of night on his own no street lights you've got the north sea to your right you've got open farmland to your left there's no homes there's nothing and he doesn't know the area doesn't know the geography of the land he's never been in daylight so he arrives we we know he arrived at one of the trick points one of the points depicting this high spot and he's looking at it and he's got his torch and he's just reading this little brass plate on it and he turns and looks down the path where he's just been and it's just a single earth path with sort of grass that will be i can't remember year uh, sorry uh, whitley i can't remember the month but uh, it'll have been about i don't know 10 to 12 inch high grass he said but then he sees above the grass uh, it looked like a figure of eight, he, he, like a very deep red or a maroon colour. Imagine a, a circle with a band pulled round it. That's how, how, what he gave it. He says, I'm looking at this thing. No sound. It's, it's, it's late at night now. You know, it's, it's, it's well past 11, probably getting towards midnight. He says, I'm staring at this. I can't work out what it is. He says, I'm just going to reach into my phone, uh, into my pocket for my phone to get a picture. Uh, and when I look up, it's gone. I was like, oh, God, like, you know, because he, he, he's sort of a bit frustrated. He said, but it's immediately replaced by three of the brightest white neon lights he'd ever seen. And they're evenly spaced, but the middle one's a little bit higher. And, I mean, these are things that he sort of realised afterwards. He says they were absolutely blindingly bright, even hard to look at, but they weren't illuminating the area. They weren't. So that's a strange one in itself, I believe. You know, when, you, when we think about that, we've got something that's it's that intense, it's hurting his eyes to look at. Or, you know, you're thinking, God, that's bright. But it's not illuminating anywhere else. He said, I've, this time I've got a tor my torch on it and the torch beams about 80 to 100 yards. He said, and it'll just about reach them. But just as I put my torch on them, they go off. Now, he set off running not in fear, because he's not looking for UFOs or unexplained lights. He's looking, he's just, he's just, he's, he's interested. So he said, I set off running down the path. He said, because I'm thinking, whoever that was, whatever it was, I'm going to catch him. And he's, you know, I, don't, I think the guy will be about 44. So he's not like in his 20s. He's not going to run like a, like a whippet, but he's still fit enough to run down path. He said, and I just kept on going. He says, I'm expecting them red lights I'd seen. I couldn't work out this sort of red sphere with a band round the middle. He said, but I'm just keep running. He said, I'm expecting to see brake lights, a quad bike or something, a motorbike. He said, there's nothing. He said, I stopped at the RAF base, sort of caught my breath. So he's ran about, you know, a, a mile. He said, and uh, then I carried on straight to the car park. And there's nothing, there's nobody there. So it had quite an effect on this guy, uh, what we've called the, the, the figure of eight. Uh, I've since spent a few nights up there, well, more now since writing the book, with, with this police officer, with sort of walking and discussing things and just hoping to get a glimpse of something. But, you know, as you already know, Whitley, it doesn't perform to order and it's, it's more than one step ahead of us, so it, it'll know... Paul's gone up there armed with cameras, I would think, and there's no way we're going to show him anything. He's not going to get it. 
Uh, I, that's the way I think that it maybe looks at us. It probably doesn't think like that. Its rationale is not like that, but there's something within the makeup of these things that know our intent. So, yeah, the, you know, the, here's a good question. Is why does it come to some people and not others? Well, like, uh, you know, we're, I'm, I'm coming up there in, in, uh, in uh, late May, and the probability is we won't see anything unusual. Uh, we well, may, yeah, but, but it doesn't have anything to do with our comings and goings, and yet it seems so sensitive and so aware of yeah, it, us. It, 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 is aware. It, it is aware. It is, and, you know, a good friend of yours, I believe, Andrew Collins. You know Andrew Whitley? Oh, very well. He's a lovely guy. Yeah, well, Andrew's spent a, a, well, more than a few nights up there with me. And uh, because he's really interested in what I'm sort of looking into. And he, he's took a lot of quite sensitive electrical equipment up there, uh, you know, recording devices, and we've placed them in various locations. Well, Andrew will tell you if you ever speak to him. It's Whatever it is, has managed to flatten the batteries on all his recording and all his uh, electrical equipment. And he said that had never happened before. We've had that happen on camcorders. And not, they're not old camcorders, and they're not sort of cheap or in any way inferior they're good but we we get this kind of thing quite often where it depletes electrical uh, batteries you know and, and other things so i don't know i took a guy up there called lee hayward who wanted to disprove what i were looking at not in a bad way he's a nice guy as lee i have lots and lots of time and respect for him but his his knowledge of the military aircraft and boats and everything is is quite formidable and he said to me i really think that there'll be an earthly explanation for what we're looking at so i, I, I he said could i come up with you now we've usually in, in wolflands used probably the wrong word lee's participated in wolflands so we get on cliff lane which is the lane that goes down towards the bird sanctuary and we're talking and he went he said to me well just give me an example of the lights, Paul, if you're looking at them compared to a big star. What do they actually look like, these orange spheres? Now, this sounds so cliche, but I looked out of the window and I said like that. And there's one there. It's it's lit up and it's it like about as big as a pea at arm's length and it's bright orange. And he admitted, he didn't say it at the time, but he admitted that he didn't know what it was at the time. And he'd, he'd got everything... That at his disposal, all the military aircraft that were going to be around, all the civilian aircraft and the boats that were going to be out. So we parked up and then over the course of, I don't know, three or four hours, these orange spheres of light showed up in multiples of twos and threes over the sea. And then, and I've never experienced anything like it on the clifftops ever, and this is just taking somebody random who's never been before, I've got a camera set up looking out to sea. There's a hillside behind us, and uh, a lot of strange stuff occurred around this hillside, but that's beside the point for this, what I'm talking about. I just turned around to talk to Lee, and on below the hill, in the field with us, about 80 to 100 yards away, is a huge sphere of orange light. My Lee's word. Like, well, Lee's likened it to the size, the influence, Lee's exact words, the influence of the light was about the size of a Volkswagen Beetle. And he's not wrong. And as, as fast as I'm bringing the camera around to try and switch it on and film it, it's imploding and gone. Now, that guy's absolutely switched now. He, he realises, he says, I had a clue what we were looking at. I've never seen anything like it. 
And that's just taking somebody up who'd never been, <laughs> excuse me, who'd never been up before. And that has happened, you know, and I wouldn't say on lots of occasions, but on numerous occasions. I mean, I've never experienced anything quite like what I saw with Lee Hayward up there um, before or since. Just incredible. I'm so, sorry for the delay. Our, oh, my, computer's, no, no, my computer is acting up. You know, folks, the last we've this is the second time we've tried to do this show. There's something about Paul. I don't know, but like, if, for example, while he was talking, things changed on the computer. Then the the mouse pointer disappeared. Now it's frozen, and so I just never know what will happen when Paul is is here. But I think you project. Some kind of bizarre something that there, you're too you're too close to all of this stuff, uh, and uh, uh, in 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 a sense, and you know, I would like to talk now about the sense of evil in some of the stories that there's something menacing about it, and haven't there been like animal mutilations in the area and so forth the, the the same area the same hillside that we've just been talking about uh not far away back in 2017 there was there weren't people finding them i was finding them at that first of all i was told by a friend who we we went to visit in danes dyke um that the police had visited him. He, he lives in the dike, he's a vagrant, uh, but he's a lovely guy and he's been in there 13 years. And I was told by Peter that the police had visited him and asked him if he'd seen any unusual animals. And <clears throat> he asked them what they meant. And he said, well, in particular, an unusual dog, a very strange looking dog, because 10 sheep have been killed at Bempton. So he told me this. We'd just visited and give him some food, and we'd just missed the police. That's the only reason, because knowing this guy, Peter, I'd have never found out. Not because he doesn't want to tell me. That's just just very quiet. So it was fresh on his mind, so that I got the information. So based on that, I found the farmer. I did a bit of digging, found out which, which farm in particular it was happening to, and I went and visited him and said, do you mind if I help you look into what's killing your livestock? Nothing to do with unexplained phenomena here, people. I, I was genuinely interested. And uh, at that particular time, I think he'd lost about 27, 28 sheep. And he, he told me I could, so that, that, in, that gave me permission to be on the land. So for just under two years, three, five, three to five days a week, I were going on that land in between four and eight o'clock, eight a.m. in the morning, but mostly to be about half four in the morning. So I'm going on in the dark, and I'm mainly I've got my reasons because people, when these livestock were being found, because nobody's looking for unexplained phenomena, especially the farmer, and he's, he just wants he wants an answer to what's killing his livestock. But the eyes had been removed, and the other farmers and other people were saying, "Well, it's crows." So I wanted to get there early, and I was finding the livestock. There were fifty bit time everything had stopped happening and they only stopped because he'd, he'd had enough and just ceased sheep farming so 
we we could rule out crows because when I found them, the the, the eyes were removed, no trauma around the eye, and I know it sounds macabre, people, but we've got to sort of be kind of blunt about this. And in many instances, the faces had been stripped of skin. If a leg had been removed, it were a front, uh, as, it, as I touch my right arm, it were a front left leg, and which ironic, I don't know why. If the throat had been removed, taken out, in some cases it looked like a people. Can people picture a paint scraper? You know the wedge shape. It looked like yeah. that had gone through. But what I wanted to stress to people, and I know it's a, a macabre thing to talk about, but that's the reality of of the phenomena in some instances. Is that we all know that a sheep is a dirty white colour, and but there were no blood. These carcasses were not covered in blood. The surrounding ground was not covered in blood. So over the period of just under two years, Whitley, we, I, dis, I discovered another almost 20, uh, uh, well, over 20 uh, carcasses, I think 22. And not only that, I found rhodia, which are the fastest animal we've got in the United Kingdom. They were suffering the same fate. Where were they suffering it? In the field with the sheep or in the adjoining wood? Now, what, what, what were, uh, just a second. What were these animals? The... Roe deer. Roe deer. Oh, roe deer. Uh, yeah, uh, of course. Yeah, I understand. You yeah, know, but so... this, is, this is just right out of Linda Moulton House playbook. Yeah, this well, I, exactly... I spoke to Linda about it. Yeah, you know, what I spoke did you have to the... say? Well, I spoke at the awakening or oh, pre-COVID, and Linda, what guest speaker? Uh, you know, you know the head speaker. Right. Um, but she requested an hour talking with me alone upstairs, uh, and a guy called Ian Hallings, I think I believe. So any road, I did. But she basically wanted to come back to Bempton and speak to the farmers because she'd got some time before she went left the UK. And I, 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 I did tell her. I said it's just not possible, Linda, because these guys are so. They're so secular that they just literally would not accept somebody coming up and asking all these pre uh, questions and de wanting to know all the details. They really wouldn't have done it. I, I could have visited locations and things, but I couldn't have taken it to, to the specific farms. It just wouldn't have been fair. I've kept the names of the farms out of the books and everything. Do you know what I mean? And, yes. and some, of, some of the place names are quite telling because... The, the, just like I said, Broxa Forest is, is named after shapeshift, you know, a shapeshifter. Uh, I need to reword that. Just because I've said a Broxa in some cultures is a shapeshifter, uh, you know, I can't say the names of the locations where these animals were actually grazing because it's quite telling. So basically, yes, yeah, she was very interested, and 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 rightly so, you know, because I know she's done some sterling work. Yeah, yes, she has. In, in, on the on the on the animal mutilations. The, uh, the let me let me run back though just a second to the to the uh, uh, to the police visit. Yeah. And they said that a very ugly dog might have been involved. Yeah. Unusual looking dog. Unusual, Unusual looking dog, and that's interesting because in the cattle mutilations in this country, there's practically never any animal or anything described as being around. The, the farmers may see lights or things like that, but no one ever sees. Could you describe this animal a little bit more? No, you've, well, you've actually got, I'd, I'd be, 
I'd be surmising if I described it anymore because I've got what I got off Peter when he yeah, told I me see. that that's what they said. But what you did touch on something. There were a roe deer in the field, uh, one of these fields where the sheep were grazing, and we, me and the farmer had watched it for weeks because I think it, it were a, an adolescent roe deer, a, a buck, and I don't think it were quite ready to sort of join and engage in combat, rutting with others, so it stayed in the field. Well, I'd done my rounds of this field, excuse me, and this particular morning as I'm coming back, the farmer's walking towards me. He says, I've just walked my dog up, he says, and that road is dead, it's near the kissing gate. So we walked over to it, it's had its face stripped uh, of, of skin, it's had its eyes removed, and it's, it, it's there, it's just a beautiful animal, just absolutely annihilated. But what I found interesting was, because the farm's in a remote place, he doesn't shut his bedroom curtains on a night. He says to me, last night, he says, I'm laid in bed listening to music, and there's a light on bedroom wall moving about. And I said, I can't believe it. I said, didn't you get up and have a look? He went, no. I said, so... Yeah, that's it, typical. Yeah, it, it's yeah, so crazy, but we th people do that all the time. I do it, you do it, we all do it. Yeah, and, uh, you know, I, I, he said, he's laid there, just listening to a bit of music in bed. It's, it's late, he said, and this light's moving about. I said, what, it a torch? He says, I don't know, he said. I said, well, well, I did. That's what I said. Didn't you get and have a look? But uh, he'd also heard disjointed voices, like m mechanical voices, whilst he was sat. He's got some decking and he'd sit on a night. He's not a wine or beer drinker, this guy. So he'd sit and have a cup of tea or coffee on a night, summer's evening. And there's a cornfield at side of him. And he said, you, unusual thing, because I'd I'll go up at all hours. And he'd, I said, what's, what's that? He said, they were talking like mechanical talking, robot, robotic voices. In field the other night. I said, where? He said, about 20 foot away. The corn is absolutely perfect. There's no foot tracks in it. There's nothing, Whitley. So it, it kind of makes you wonder what was present. Do you, do you know what I'm saying? You yeah, know, I, I, I exactly. Heard, I'd heard the voices myself. And, uh, you know, one morning I went in looking for the for the sheep because, like we said, we found road here. So I always spent time in the wood. And it was when the bracken were quite high. And as I'm walking through with my little dog, I heard the robotic voices. I, I did consider crossing a crop to, because I, I was a little bit nervous about going back. But I, I did. I, I put the, got the courage and I went back uh, the same way I came. I don't I'd like be surprised you if you were. You're probably, it's a bit of an English understatement. I was a bit nervous. Well, I was. Well, yeah, <laughs> nothing like hearing robotic voices when you're alone in a forest. It's, it's, it's to, to make you nervous. Without a doubt, yeah, without yeah. a doubt. Well, you know, we have come to the end of our time together today again, Paul, and I want to thank you again for being so gracious in coming back and redoing the show. We talked about completely different things, folks, and I will never know where that other <laughs> show went. But I will say this. This computer has acted like a bucking bronco the entire time Paul has been on so, Paul, you've got a lot of juju, and I wouldn't be surprised if you don't see many more extraordinary things. And I'm looking forward to seeing you uh, in uh, late May. It, it will have well, a great time to together. May. I'm sure we will. Thank you, Whitley. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, folks, very much, as always, for being Dreamland subscribers and Unknown Country subscribers. You've been listening to Dreamland. Be sure to tune in again next week. 
Dreamland is brought to you by UnknownCountry.com and its family.